The doctrine of God in the Westminster Confession of Faith is a doctrine of God that Thomas Aquinas would have subscribed. Notions of simplicity are concepts that one finds articulated in the Middle Ages. And I think with slightly less precision, but in the early church as well. In other words, a confessional Presbyterian today does not have the option of throwing out Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of God. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Today we have a special episode from the Center for Classical Theology, which is really an arm of Credo itself. This past year in San Antonio, Texas, we launched the Center for Classical Theology with an inaugural address by Carl Truman himself titled Classical Theology and the Modern Mind. We hope you will come each year because we will have a special theologian give this address each November in 2024. Michael Horton will join us in San Diego, California, and give an address about sola scriptura and its future in light of classical theology and the Reformed tradition. We hope to see you there. In the meantime, enjoy this address by Carl Truman. The contemplation of God as God is not a significant part of modern Protestant, Reformed, or Evangelical piety. The doctrine of God in the Westminster Confession of Faith is a doctrine of God that Thomas Aquinas would have subscribed. Notions of simplicity are concepts that one finds articulated in the Middle Ages, and I think with slightly less precision, but in the early church as well. In other words, a confessional Presbyterian today does not have the option of throwing out Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of God. Welcome. Please come in and take a seat. Let me just say how encouraging it is to see all of you here. We have been planning and anticipating this event for some time now. Uh, goodness, I just talked to one of you who said you signed up with tickets a year ago. Uh, we are so pleased that you're here. I hope you feel welcome and uh, you have the opportunity to connect with so many other uh, like-minded people like yourself. Uh, my name is Matthew Barrett, and I am the founder of Credo Magazine and the host of the Credo Podcast, uh, both of which uh, attempt to make classical theology accessible uh, to, to students and to pastors and to theologically-minded churchgoers as well. 
Uh, but about a year ago, uh, I thought, wouldn't it be great if we also could reach out to scholars as well so that they have a chance to uh, think alongside one another about how together we can renew classical Christianity today, whether it's in classrooms or pulpits or in many of the publications that you are working on. And so uh, the Center for Classical uh, Theology was born, and thanks in large part to our sponsor, Crossway Publishing, which we will be, uh, we're just delighted uh, that they have partnered with us and we'll be saying more about them in a minute. Let me tell you just a little bit. I know you're eager to hear Carl Truman, so I'm not going to be up here long, but let me just say for a second here what the center is all about. It exists to contemplate God and all things in relation to God by listening. And here's the key, the key part by listening with humility uh, to God's word, uh, along with the wisdom of the great tradition. Uh, the, the purpose really is to create a renewed vision for theology today in the spirit of faith-seeking understanding. Uh, each year, we will be hosting this event and uh, a lectureship with a significant theologian. Uh, we're, as I mentioned, we're doing so in partnership with Crossway, and each lecture will then be expanded into a small book that will be published in what will be called the New Studies and Classical Theology series. So please look for that to come. In the aftermath of modernism and postmodernism's deconstruction of Christianity, each lectureship is committed to the renewal of classical Christianity, but by retrieving the orthodoxy of the church universal from the church fathers to the medieval and even the Protestant scholastics after them. And so the center summons the next generation of theologians to exemplify all of this, exemplify a biblical reasoning, a rational contemplation, a, a reformational Catholicity that directs theology to its spiritual and most blessed hope, which of course is beholding the beauty of our Lord together. And so we hope that this time in which you come together is a time of encouragement uh, so that you feel not just encouraged, but equipped to go back to your schools, to your churches, and to make a real difference yourself. Our speaker tonight is, as you've heard, Carl Truman, and his lecture will be followed by a collaborative discussion with some other theologians you know, including James Dolezal and Kevin DeYoung, myself, led by Timothy Gatewood. But first, let me say just a quick word about Carl Truman. You know him uh, so well from his many publications. Of course, he's professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He's also the author of too many books to even name, but allow me to just mention a few of my favorites. Uh, Luther's Legacy, uh, John Owen, Reformed Catholic Renaissance Man, uh, Luther on the Christian Life, the Creedal Imperative, uh, another book called Grace Alone, and of course his award-winning book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. But let me just say a quick personal word about Carl as well. Uh, it really is a privilege to count Carl a friend in so many ways. 
And Carl is, is used to uh, not just receiving compliments, but I have seen him at times receive all kinds of criticism from any number of corners uh, over the years. But as I've watched him, one thing that I have observed is this. I deeply respect this about Carl is his faithfulness to continue speaking truth and in a way that is as sobering as it is profound. And so, Carl, we are looking forward to you speaking tonight and having the opportunity to engage with you, uh, with everybody here. Please come and speak to us. What is a great pleasure to be with you this evening. It's a really great pleasure not to be giving a lecture on why men cannot be women. I think this might be the first time in about 18 months that I've done that. So there's a refreshing change for me and no doubt for you as well. Uh, Delighted and honored to be asked to inaugurate the Center for Classical Theology. I really do think that the time is right for the recovery of the classical theological tradition by Protestantism. What I hope to do this evening is offer some thoughts on why uh, given uh, the culture in which we now live, this is a particularly important uh, thing for us to be considering. A word about my approach, though, at the start, I should say, uh, uh, it's, it's odd in some ways to have asked me to give this lecture because I'm not a theologian. I have no theological qualification whatsoever. Uh, those of you who read my theological stuff may not be surprised by that statement. Uh, and I was recently described by the lovely David French of the New York Times as some sort of theologian or philosopher, but not an attorney. Uh, the only thing correct in that sentence is that I'm not an attorney. Uh, I'm actually an intellectual historian. And so what I want to offer tonight is reflections really from my own perspective as an intellectual historian on why I think classical Christian theology uh, is an important thing for us to reclaim. I gave the lecture the title, Classical Theology in the Modern Mind, and wanting in some ways to try to tie together the two parts of my career. For many, many years, I was a Reformation and post-Reformation uh, academic in the last four or five years, partly due to causes that I've had to get involved in in my local districts. Uh, I have switched my attention to more cultural matters, the matter of the modern mind. And what I want to do this evening is offer some reflections on the nature of that modern mind and how I think a recovery of classical uh, theology will help us to counteract within the church some of those tendencies. I think the primary concern of the church at this moment in time is the catechizing of our own people, if I could put it that way. Uh, we are in such a state at the moment, certainly in the West, that the thing we need to do more than anything else is make sure that our own Christian people, our own young people, our own children are properly catechized in the faith. And that, I think, rests upon having a good grasp of classical Christian theology. So to begin with, I just want to, to note uh, four, five what I call pathologies of the modern mind, uh, pathologies of the modern mind that I think are also pathologies often of the modern Christian mind. 
uh, then present classical theology as something of an antidote, or at least part of the solution to these pathologies. The first pathology, I think, is that we tend to be an anti-historical culture. There are various reasons for that. I actually think America is particularly prone to being anti-historical, partly because, and this sounds like a condescending comment of an Englishman about America, partly because you don't have a lot of history. Uh, That is true. Uh, I'm a huge Western fan. Uh, Loved going to the Alamo this afternoon, just blundered into it, and there it was. A lot smaller than it was in the movies, I have to say. But the Alamo, less than, well, 200 years ago, And yet there it is, early in America's history. When I taught at the University of Aberdeen uh, many years ago, my office, uh, I think, was built in 1493. And it had portraits of Scottish kings around the walls. America is a very anti-historical culture, as is becoming the case in the West in general. There are many reasons for that. I think technology pushes us always to think that the future is going to be more exciting and more interesting than the present. I think we're living through an era now where we're being taught that history is really a history of oppression. That would be an entire lecture to itself. But it strikes me as interesting, and this is not caused by critical theory, but it strikes me as interesting that critical theory, at least some of its claims, have proved so plausible to the modern mind over the last four or five years. That tells me that the ground has been prepared And what is critical theory? In some ways, it is a very anti-historical kind of phenomenon because what it does is it debunks the great historical narratives. So we live in an anti-historical age. We live as well, I think, and I think that uh, is the same uh, in Christianity as it is in the wider world as well. I had the pleasure last week of hearing my friend Lee Gattis. Uh, I know he's on the front row trying to intimidate me here. I had the the good manners to sit on the back row, I think, at your lecture, actually, Lee. But uh, Lee, speaking about uh, the importance of confessional Anglicanism, and uh, he made one comment in that that I think I actually disagree with a little, Uh, certainly in terms of Grove City. But I think his comment stands as true for the general culture in which we live, and that is that there is an impatience with traditional liturgies. Strange to tell at Grove City, one of my colleagues told me that student rebellion at Grove is coming from an evangelical church and attending an Anglican church, the traditional Book of Common Prayer Anglican church in the city. But that is not the case widely. By and large, Many of the big box, big evangelical churches have abandoned traditional liturgy, traditional hymnody. That speaks, I think, of something of an anti-historical culture. I'm going to return to other aspects of that a little later. So our culture is anti-historical. I think our Christian culture has often been anti-creedal as well. I think there are dynamics within Protestant evangelicalism that lend Protestant evangelicalism to an anti-creedalism. One of them is the appropriate emphasis upon Scripture alone as an authority. And I think that's a good thing, the emphasis upon Scripture alone. The way it is often played out, however, is not so much uh, in a way that the Reformers would have understood, but combined with the anti-historical mentality of our culture, it has become iconoclastic. 
One could make the case that the reformers had, I would say, a hermeneutic of trust relative to church tradition. The church tradition had authority until it was proved to be wrong. I think the modern evangelical mentality has tended to be church tradition only has authority once it has been proved right. That is a difference in the imagination. It's a difference in the culture. It may not appear different on the page, but it represents a very, very different cultural pathology. I think there is an anti-creedalism because we are suspicious of tradition. I think also because evangelicalism has tended to have a deep suspicion of what I would call speculative language as well. Probably, as I use the language of speculative, some of you will immediately have reacted negatively to that language. That's a sign of the culture I'm talking about. When you read the patristic fathers, when you read the medievals, when you read the reformers and see what they're actually doing and saying, there is a lot of what we might now call speculative language involved in what they do. I think we live in a world where abstractions, speculative abstractions, are typically regarded with suspicion. And in that kind of a world, in that kind of a world, the creeds and especially the confessions, I think, will come under serious pressure. We live in a very anti-ecclesiastical world in many ways. And here I think this is, uh, here I'm going to say something a little bit odd, I suppose. Some of you have heard me speak before, may have heard me say something like this. First of all, I want to say religious freedom is a good thing. I rejoice to live in America where the government does not tell me who I have to worship, whether I can worship, what words I must use when I worship, if I can worship at all. Religious freedom is a good thing. But religious freedom brings with it a problem. It is not, we might say, an unmitigated good. It is a good but like so many goods, it does create problems as well. And the problem religious freedom creates is this, and it's one that Tocqueville sees in the early 19th century when he as a European is observing the American experiment in its early decades. What religious freedom does is it tilts power towards the congregate. I live in Grove City, West, well, I live in Slippery Rock, but I worked in Grove City, Western Pennsylvania. I'm guessing there are probably 10 or 15 churches within a 10-mile radius of where I live where I could worship, possibly where I could get ordained, and yet they belong to different denominations. We choose our religion today in a way that would not have been done in the year 1400. Charles Taylor, the great Canadian philosopher, has a way of expressing this. He says, you can believe exactly the same things today that somebody believed in the year 1500, but you cannot believe them in the same way because you choose to believe them. And as soon as choice becomes a function in a society where there are a variety of denominations and churches, the tilt is against ecclesiastical authority. Some of you have probably been pastors or are pastors and will know that you know, church discipline, by and large these days, only two of the three reasons for church discipline actually work. Vindicating the name of Christ in public, indicating to the congregation that you take this person's sin seriously. The third function, reclaiming the sinner, 
generally doesn't work. Why? Because the sinner can leave your church and go down the road to another church. There's an anti-ecclesiastical dimension, even to our churches. We live in an era of instrumental reason. We like arguments to lead to practical results. One of the things I'm going to say about classical theology is a lot of it is contemplative. The purpose of classical theology is not to enable the city to flourish. It is not to help people give up alcoholism. It is not to save somebody's marriage. All of those things may be very, very good things. But one of the things that you find when you read the early church theologians or the medieval theologians, or even many of the Puritans, is that the contemplation of God is seen as an end in itself. It is not instrumental to something else. Think about prayer requests in your churches. And again, this is not a criticism because we're commanded to pray for the healing of the sick. But we're not commanded only to pray for the healing of the sick. Often, prayer requests at prayer meetings, 99 out of 100 requests are for Granny's Bunyan or something like that. They're health-related. They're instrumental. Very few occasions does one fear here Pray that we might be able to contemplate the revealed nature of God more effectively. We too are creatures of instrumental reason, I think, within the church. And then finally, I could go on, but my final one I draw to your attention to this evening is therapeutic. It connects somewhat to the previous point. Uh, human needs. We tend to think of the gospel we tend to think of our beliefs as most important when they are connected to our needs. The contemplation of God as God is not a significant part of modern Protestant, Reformed, or Evangelical piety. These are all, I would say, pathologies that find themselves exemplified in the church, which really reflect the world around us. So I want to, in, in the rest of this lecture, uh, offer some thoughts on why I return to classical theology. And by classical theology, I'm really meaning the theology hammered out in the early church, preserved in the Middle Ages, and then codified in the sections dealing with things like the doctrine of God in the great confessions of the 16th and 17th centuries. What I say this evening, I suppose, will apply most directly to people like myself who belong to confessional denominations where we adhere to such confessions. But because the language of confessionalism is so generic and permeates so many churches, I hope that what I have to say will have some relevance to everybody here who is a professing Christian and attends church. First of all, then, the anti-historical dimension of modern Christianity is something we must combat at all costs. Orthodox Protestantism is an historical theological phenomenon, at least in its origin. And I'm coming at this, I say, as a historian, as an intellectual historian, not as a theologian or as a philosopher. I could put it facetiously and say there was only one original theologian in Geneva in the 16th century, 
and they burned him because of his originality. <laughs> the last thing you wanted to be in the 16th century was an original theologian. And the reason for that was you wanted your theology grounded in the tradition of the church because you assumed that the tradition of the church was basically correct unless it was proved to be inadequate by the teaching of Scripture. What we've seen in the last 20, 30 years in the realm of church history, I think, has been a wonderful and helpful transformation in our understanding of how Christian doctrine today has come to be. I am not a patristics scholar at all, but I am aware uh, somewhat of the revolution in patristic scholarship that has taken place over the last 20, 30 years. If you were to go back 120, 130, 140 years and encounter the works of somebody like John Henry Newman on the early church, you would read a history of the early church that was very much set up in terms of fairly clear black and white categories and good guys and bad guys. What we have learned over the last 20, 30 years, thanks to the work of, among others, Louis Ayres and Khaled Anatolios, is that the development of the Trinity, the development of the doctrine of the Trinity in the early church, is a highly variegated process whereby Orthodox Trinitarianism emerges from a complex set of shifting debates and discussions. What that teaches us is this, Nicene formulations don't simply fall off the pages of Scripture. To understand the doctrine of the Trinity, you have to understand something of the history of the doctrine of the Trinity. To understand why hypostasis, arguing for three hypostases, is anathema in 325 and is compulsory in 381, you have to study the history of the debates. You might say, well, what has that got to do with me? If you say the Nicene Creed, I would suggest that you as a Christian, certainly as a minister, have a responsibility to explain to your people what the Nicene Creed means. And that requires you understanding what goes on between 325 and 381. A similar story can be told about the history of Protestantism. And I was privileged to be involved in this kind of rewriting of Protestant theological history myself. One could start the story many places, but I think uh, an interesting watershed book is the book by the German uh, theological historian Josef Lorz, uh, The Reformation in Germany published in the 1940s. Lortz's sort of insight was that Luther was not a radical break with what had gone before. Luther was the product of, and in some senses the opponent of, a degenerate form of Catholicism. Now you might say, well, that, that doesn't sound like a very sympathetic to Luther take. Absolutely not a sympathetic to Luther take. Josef Lortz is a Jesuit. It's also actually a Nazi. It's sort of, they try to hide that a little bit these days, uh, as one would, of course, had one been a Nazi, I guess. Uh, Lord is not sympathetic to Luther, but the point he's making is this. There is no dramatic break of the Reformation in the way that Protestant and Catholic mythology held that there was. It is more complicated than that. 
And really what Lourdes does is he paves the way for the work of the great Heiko Obermann. Obermann, I think, without a doubt, the greatest Reformation historian of the last hundred years, maybe of any era. I had the privilege to meet him uh, once just a year before his untimely death. Heiko Obermann in the early 1960s wrote a very influential book, The Harvest of Medieval Theology, which was in some ways a response to Lord's. Obermann was arguing that actually the theology that Luther was reacting against was pretty vibrant, but Luther definitely emerged out of it. And to understand Luther, you have to see him in terms of points of continuity and points of break with what had gone before. The great move of Obermann in that was he bracketed out the truth question. You might say, well, that sounds like a pretty unadvisable thing for somebody to do. But actually bracketing out the truth question is very important if you want to read the texts properly. If you go in with a preconception about the texts, then you'll merely find your preconceptions confirmed. The great thing I, as a student, learned from reading Obermann was, okay, you have strong opinions on this. Bracket them out when you're reading the text to see what the text actually say. The second thing that Obermann did was he introduced, I think, a very important uh, distinction between kinds of tradition. You ask, you know, an evangelical, typical evangelical believer, uh, you know, about tradition, and they'll probably say, well, the difference between Protestants and Catholics is they hold to the authority of tradition. We reject it. Obermann demonstrated that the position is more difficult than that in the Reformation. He articulated what he called Tradition 1 and Tradition 2. And tradition 1 was the, the exegetical tradition that you could trace back through the Middle Ages to the early church, where thinking was regulated by the text of Scripture. You might say, well, I, I didn't realize that the medievals took Scripture seriously. Uh, just as an aside observation, in order to be the equivalent of a professor teaching theology in the Middle Ages, you would have had to have lectured and preached through more Scripture than any tenured professor in any Bible department or seminary in the United States of America today. That's how seriously the medievals took Scripture. Now, there are problems in their approach, but they did take Scripture seriously. There is a T1 tradition to trace. The problem, as Obermann's already, is T2, and that's where the theological tradition starts to drift away from Scripture and become entirely determined by the teaching magisterium of the church. So one might say, for example, that the virgin birth of Christ is articulated through an exegetical tradition. I would want to argue that the uh, immaculate conception of the Virgin Mary, that's a T2 thing. That stands out with that exegetical tradition. That's where the Pope and the Cardinals are intervening to say something's the case, even though the exegetical basis for it is almost non-existent. After Obermann came the great David Steinmetz, his pupil who confirmed Obermann's basic arguments that the Reformation has to be connected positively in some sense to the medieval period and the patristic period. Steinmetz confirms that really through his exegetical studies. And then we have the student of David Steinmetz and my own very good friend and one, a man that I'm honored to call a mentor, Richard Muller, who is the student of David Steinmetz. 
You have granddad, dad, and the heir. And what Richard Muller does is he extends what's been done relative to the Reformation in the Middle Ages to the 17th century. So you start to get this picture of the emergence of classic Protestantism out of the teaching of the patristic period through the Middle Ages into the Reformation and then consolidated and codified in the great confessions of the 17th century. I think there is another stage that has yet to be done that carries that forward and uh, sees how that is affected by the Enlightenment. I think work on that is starting to come out, but that's the next kind of uh, frontier on this front. But it allows us to say certain things like this. The doctrine of God in the Westminster Confession of Faith is a doctrine of God that Thomas Aquinas would have subscribed. Notions of simplicity are concepts that one finds articulated in the Middle Ages. And I think with slightly less precision, but in the early church as well. In other words, a confessional Presbyterian today does not have the option of throwing out Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of God. I don't think that is the case. That brings me then to the creedal dimension. I mentioned earlier the, the anti-creedal side of modern evangelicalism and indeed the modern mindset in general. I think the thing that most shocked me when I was doing my work on Owen in the 17th century is that the no creed but the Bible people did exist and they were called Socinians, and they were really bad guys. I can put it that way. The Reformed Orthodox were not no creed but the Bible guys in the sense of just having their Bibles. They engaged in theological formulation, in dialogue with the tradition of the church. It didn't mean they affirmed the idea of every theologian who'd occurred in the church. That would be incoherent and impossible. But none of them thought that simply staring at the pages of their Bible would allow them to come up with the orthodox Christian faith. And to our credit, I guess, we evangelicals on that front, what we deny in theory, we often affirm in practice. We may deny the importance of tradition in theory, but most competent ministers will use commentaries to prepare their sermons. Most competent ministers will use Bible translations that stand uh, in a tradition of Bible translation. We're all aware that actually this is the way theology has to be done. It has to be done in dialogue with the past. The difference between us, say, and the Reformed Orthodox is they were self-conscious in this approach. And when you are self-conscious in an approach, you can be aware of its limitations and its problems. If you are not self-conscious in your approach, then you will not be aware of the limitations and the problems. So, when we look at the Reformed writings of the 16th and 17th centuries, one of the striking things I find is this. The number of citations from patristic and medieval writers that one finds. I started to make my sort of you know, to the extent I had a breakthrough, my breakthrough on John Owen was when I realized how often he cited Thomas Aquinas in his marginal notes in his texts. It struck me as odd. 
because I was very much of that sort of no creed, but the Bible, radical break, 1517, et cetera, et cetera, kind of Christian. But when I started to explore what John Owen was doing relative to his marginal notes, it became clear that he was engaged in sifting the tradition for ideas and concepts that allowed him to understand Scripture more clearly and more precisely. Patristic doctrine, medieval doctrine, and that was, of course, not a distinction that would have been made by these guys. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux is one of the fathers for Calvin. Now, Bernard is, we think of him as medieval. Calvin thought of him as one of the fathers. They didn't have a particularly acute historical sense in many ways. But they engaged in this dialogue with those who had gone before. I think it's in uh, John Owen's introduction to Theophilus Gale's The True Idea of Jansenism. Uh, and he talks about the Dominicans. And he actually, I think he reversed them as the less deluded of the medieval brethren or something like that. He, he's forced to kind of say, yeah, the Dominicans actually got a lot of stuff right. I don't want to say they're good guys, but basically they got this right. Uh, also, I think one of the things that, the, that we need to be aware of, that history makes us aware of, is the way doctrine develops. Now, that's a controversial term in some circles. When I say doctrine develops, what I really don't mean is the truth changes. That, I think, is how we tend to think of it. That, I suspect, is how the current Pope thinks of it as well, but that's a, a discussion for a different day. Uh, the expression, the formulation of doctrine changes over time. The grasp of truth deepens over time such that things that one could get away with saying about the second person of the Trinity at the beginning of the fourth century, one cannot say them at the end of the fourth century. I was very helped in this by the, the essay by the Catholic theologian Bernard Lonergan, discussing mapping out the way theology moves towards the Nicene formulation. And he makes a very interesting point there. He essentially says, you know, the formulation of doctrine is a dialectical process. Sounds a bit Hegelian. It may well have been influenced with Hegel, I don't know. But what he means by that is that every time the church resolves a theological problem, it puts in place a set of concepts that are then used to solve the next problem or maybe are then used to solve the problem that those concepts initially throw up. good example of this would be the move from the late 4th to the 5th century in terms of discussion of Christology. Once the Council of Constantinople has set the terms of the Nicene Creed, the Christological discussions of the next century operate with those categories. And in you know, every time an ecumenical group make a statement, they kind of reaffirm all we're teaching is what was actually implicit at Nicaea. It's actually more complicated than they thought, but essentially, doctrine develops, formulations of truth develop dialectically. Why do I say that? I say that because it means that when you come to language of without passions, when you come to language of without parts, you need to understand why the church decided that was a good way of speaking. And that requires digging into the history to see what the issues were. That has implications for subscription. Here I'm speaking to the Presbyterians, maybe the Lutherans among us. 
Uh, Anglicans subscribe to, at least in theory. Lee, would that be said? <laughs> Couldn't resist getting one back after last Thursday. Lee was goading the Presbyterians in his lecture at Grove last Thursday. So it has implications for subscription. Uh, ministers, those going forward to take ministerial vows, need to understand what they're subscribing to. And that requires them being taught the history of the church. It requires them being taught what the language means. Uh, numerous times in my experience on candidates' credentials committees have been students who really don't like the language of without passions in the Westminster Confession. And on every occasion I've found that once somebody's explained it to them, they don't object to it anymore. The language means something different to us in our common parlance than it does in the confession. And the problem can be diffused by an attention to history. Brings me then to the ecclesiastical dimension. And here I want to take in a slightly different way. One of the things, and I throw this out here without any particular resolution, but I throw it out here to bring your attention to an interesting phenomenon which greater and sharper minds than mine should wrestle with. What are the implications of this new historiography and of classical theology for understanding the significance of the Reformation today? I'll give you a personal anecdote. I remember some 13, 14, 15 years ago, uh, I was academic dean at a seminary, and I had to go to one of those ATS meetings, the Association of Theological Schools. They're always fun because the schools from all over the spectrum. And on day two, they divided us along confessional lines. And, of course, I'm the Presbyterian, so I get put into the evangelical group. I won't mention names, but I was in a group of four or five people. And as I looked around the, the group, I recognized at least one person there who believes that God is radically changeable and doesn't know the future. I looked across at the Eastern Orthodox group and the Catholic group with some longing in my heart, thinking <laughs> I, I may disagree on the sacraments and justification, but at least I agree on who God is with these people. Now, I don't know quite what to do with that, because it's simply interesting to me that evangelicalism has generally prioritized certain doctrines over others. My experience in the Reformed seminary world was that far more attention was paid to what chapter one of the confession meant than chapter two. And I don't think the chapters were ordered in declining importance. I think the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Scripture have coordinate importance. So why is the one so strictly held to and the other one is negotiable? Why in the realm of ecumenics do we focus on justification by grace and faith and yet find serious differences on the doctrine of God to be of no account? Now, I don't know what to do with that because I have to say, at least on that second question, my intuitions still lie with we, we need to prioritize soteriology. But I am disturbed. I am disturbed by that. I'm not sure that I can fully justify that position. I suspect that a lot of our ecumenical priorities are historically connected. 
particularly I think the priority of scripture connects to the history, history of conservative Protestantism and evangelicalism in America in the 20th century for good reasons. Scripture emerged as a priority, but that does not mean that the doctrine of God should slip as a priority. Next point, therapeutic dimension. I think we need, one of the things that I think classical theology does is this, it alerts us to how much of the modern doctrine of God is driven by therapy. Now, I do not wish to trivialize the Holocaust by talking about it in terms of therapy. But I was very struck as a postgraduate reading what I still consider to be a page-turner of a book, even though I disagreed with virtually every page. Jürgen Moltmann's The Crucified God. It has to be one of the most dazzling theological works of the latter part of the 20th century. And what Moltmann, of course, is doing there is he is wrestling with, what do you do with the doctrine of God after Auschwitz? What does a doctrine of God mean after Auschwitz? Of course, Moltmann, I think, is justifying God before man. He's trying to answer Ivan Karamazov's question rather than the question how to justify man before God. But I was then struck reading Tom Wayne Andy's book, Father Tom Wayne Andy's book, some years later, when writing on the impassibility of God, does God suffer? He says, the big problem I faced as I started this book was Auschwitz. How do you articulate an impassable God in the context of 20th century suffering? And I think that that, in a cheapened form, has profoundly shaped modern popular doctrines of God, that empathy has emerged as the key thing in God. Uh, I was very struck a few years ago teaching a doctrine of God. We didn't have a proper theologian at the time, so I had to step in and do it, taught the doctrine of God at Grove City College, and a student alerted me to Lauren Daigle's song, You Say. I confess I had heard it on the radio. I thought it was Adele, and I thought she was singing about her boyfriend. Uh, uh, the students alerted me to the fact that it was not Adele. It was an Adele knockoff, uh, and that she was singing about God. Completely blew my mind. It was like, no, you've got to be kidding me. And I did a Googled it. Yes. And this won the Gospel Music Award for 2019, I think. Staggering. Staggering. But just in a crude sense, a crude expression of a doctrine of God that has gained a lot of traction in a lot of circles. The passable God, the empathetic God. And yet I was very struck and moved. I get the students, we, we look at the Lauren Daigle song, and then I get them to read Richard Borkham's article, Only the Suffering God Can Help. And then I get them to read a chapter of Todd Billings' book where he connects his terminal cancer to the classical doctrine of God. And I was particularly moved by this passage. In the hospital, and he's talking here about being in the hospital, having cancer treatment for a cancer that cannot be cured, I didn't need just solidarity in my suffering. I needed to know that God's covenant love is so steady and powerful that in Christ, suffering and death lose their dominion over my life. This God does not need suffering and death in order to be God. I think that's a direct response to Maltman there. Instead, in the love that accords perfectly with his covenantal promises, 
God becomes incarnate as the pioneer, our brother, the great high priest, who in his humanity is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is not a deep division in God himself. This is steadfast, trustworthy love. And if you haven't read Todd Billings' book, uh, Praise and Lament, I think it's a classic. Uh, And it carries real power because he's writing of somebody dying of cancer, articulating an orthodox doctrine of God pastorally within that context. Brings me then to the liturgical dimension. I think the doctrine of God, the classic uh, classical theology, can shape our liturgy. So much of our worship is instrumental. It's about what God does for us, or what God will do for us. Classical theology, of course, was ecclesial in origin. It was done within the context of the church. And much of it was contemplative. The transformation came through the contemplation. And one contemplated God because he was great. Theology, Steve Doobie says, tells us, should not be undertaken without participation in the worship of the church. Public worship is vital to the spiritual and intellectual health of the theologian because it calls us out of our own mental strivings. In it, God addresses us from without through his ordained servants and alerts us afresh to his rich goodness. The elements of the liturgy reorient us to reveal truths that we may be apt to neglect by native disposition or by circumstance. The singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs may remind us that God's incomprehensibility is an occasion for reverence, wonder, and joy. It's the theology of Job 28. The confession of sin may remind us of our truly undeserving state and of the humbling fact that we live and have communion with God at all only by his free grace. The pastoral prayers and supplications about the needs of the congregation and the world may remind us that suffering is a dire problem to be eradicated. This is my glass. Not by the God who suffers, but by the self-sufficient God who transcends the economy. Not something to be glamorized by our locating God within the broken system of the world or implying that God had to become God by overcoming it. Classical theology, permeating the liturgy, places God at the center. I preached last week in Grove College Chapel on Paul uh, in Athens, and I noted the language of Paul being provoked by the idolatry there was the same word that the Septuagint uses about God being provoked by the idolatry of the people of Israel. In other words, the evangelistic motivation of Paul was not first and foremost the salvation of souls there. It was the vindication of God's name before the people. Classical theology gives you that kind of God. I want to close. I'm running out of time here. I want to close with two prayers. When I taught the doctrine of God at the end of each class or almost every class, I would try to pull out of, uh, particularly out of the medieval or the patristic period, a great prayer to illustrate the doctrine that I'd been teaching. And time and time again, the students would say to me, we have never heard a prayer like that in the churches we attend. So I want to end by reading two prayers to give you a vision for what classical theology 
can do in terms of the vision of God it can give people and how that can lead to praise. The first is from the great Gregory of Nazianzus. By the way, a bit of trivia. I am the only man who has ever mentioned the name of Gregory Nazianzus in a rap record. And my one rap record, I didn't make it. It was put together by some crazy guy in Australia. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, but the students played at Grove on a loop, apparently, in one of the dorms. And I asked one of the girls, I said, what do you think of, of my rap record? And uh, she said, it was hideous, Dr. Truman. <laughs> so there you go. But anyway, the prayer of Gregory of Nazianzus. Listen to this. O all-transcendent God, what words can sing your praises? No word does you justice. What mind can probe your secret? No mind can encompass you. You are alone beyond the power of speech. Yet all that we speak stems from you. You are alone beyond the power of thought. Yet all that we can conceive springs from you. All things proclaim you, those endowed with reason and those bereft of it. All the expectation and pain of the world coalesces in you. All things utter a prayer to you, a silent hymn composed by you. You sustain everything that exists and all things that move together to your orders. You are the goal of all that exists. You are the one and you are the all. Yet you are none of the things that exist, neither a part nor the whole. You can avail yourself of any name. How shall I call you the only unnameable, all-transcendent God? That's an amazingly theological prayer. But it's also a prayer that I think any Christian believer could grasp and be moved by. Nazianzus is so aware there of how little he knows of this great and infinite God. <laughs> Notice it's more questions and assertions in some ways, rhetorical questions that highlight the limit of his knowledge. And I say to the students, you can look throughout the entire works of Gregory of Nazianzus. You will never find the phrase, the big man upstairs, anywhere. I actually say to students, if I hear you using it on campus anywhere, that's an instant fail. You can get 100% in the exam. You're failed. If I... And then we had a graduation speaker who used that phrase twice. And students were coming up to me after and said, Doctor, and I was praying that the Lord would make me one of your brain cells just for 10 seconds. I said, because I wanted to know what was going on inside your head. And I said, well, nothing good. I can, I can assure you of that. And then listen to this. This is from somebody that I found online. No, nothing really about her at all. Angela of Foligno, a woman, 1248 to 309 are her dates. But listen to this prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, make me worthy to understand the profound mystery of your holy incarnation, which you have worked for our sake and for our salvation. Truly, there is nothing so great and wonderful as this, that you, my God, who are the creator of all things, should become a creature so that we should become like God. You have humbled yourself and made yourself small that we might be made mighty. You have taken the form of a servant so that you might confer upon us a royal and divine beauty. You who are beyond understanding have made yourself understandable to us in Jesus Christ. You who are the uncreated God have made yourself a creature for us. You who are the untouchable one have made yourself touchable to us. You who are the most high Make us capable of understanding your amazing love 
and the wonderful things you have done for us. Make us able to understand the mystery of your incarnation, the mystery of your life, your example and doctrine, the mystery of your cross and passion, the mystery of your resurrection and ascension. Blessed are you, O Lord, for coming to earth as a man. Amen. Amazing prayer. And that arises, I think, out of the fact that this woman has a grasp of the infinite majesty of God, grounded in her classical doctrine of God. And that's what makes the incarnation that much more magnificent. It makes it both more mysterious, but also more magnificent. The more like man your God is, the less wonderful the incarnation is likely to appear. So, as I conclude, why is it important to recover classical theology? Why is it important to read the great classical theologians, not to agree with everything they've said? That would be incoherent. There is no consensus such that every theologian everywhere agrees on every point. But I think it can give us a vision for the greatness of God and the holiness and the transcendence of God that we have lost. And to return to where I started, thinking about the modern world, in a world like ours that is so much in flux, in such chaos, where the church, at least in the West, is seeing such tremendous setbacks, if not judgment, coming upon her, a grasp of the great and infinite unchanging God would seem to me to be absolutely basic to the church's survival for the next generation. Thank you for listening so patiently. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.